Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Want flexibility? Take yoga. Want flexibility with your health insurance? Check out United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget friendly medical, dental, and vision coverage that may be right for you. More at uh1.com. Thanks for your support on Patreon, Jonas Brandes. As a qualified physician, Jonas was present during Frederick V's final moments, and he did his best to comfort him before the Elector Palatine succumbed to a fever. Good effort, Jonas. This, of course, is all a lie, but if you would like me to lie about you, you know where to go. Head on over to patreon.com forward slash when diplomacy fails. More on that later, but for now, enjoy episode 58 of the Thirty Years' War. Hello and welcome, history friends. Patrons all, to When Diplomacy Fails, a 10-year-old podcast, I can say that officially now, and we are looking here, of course, at the 30 Years' War. Kind of feels like we've been doing the 30 Years' War series for 10 years, but there you go. Just a tiny bit of housekeeping before we start, this is the final time I'll be recording in this place. We are in the process, myself and Anna, of moving house, so they tell you moving house is the most stressful thing you can do, other than, like, Getting married, or maybe it's getting divorced, I'm not sure. But either way, I can tell you as a unbiased source, yes, moving house is very stressful, but I'm very fortunate to be able to move house because Ireland at the moment is pretty awful for the housing situation. That in itself is another story, but if you're wondering why I haven't been doing any, like, 10 weeks to run wild type celebrations for our 10th birthday, then that is why a lot of things are just happening at the moment between handing in the chapter of my PhD, my best friend's wedding, and now this. So yeah, life is kind of getting in the way of the podcast, which is really just not acceptable at all. But things should be coming down the next while, hopefully by the end of May or so, I will be settled into our new place. We'll still be living in County Wicklow, which is all that matters to me, really. I just want to be a County Wicklow man and nothing else. Expect some kind of celebration, a probably ridiculous, out-of-proportion celebration, in the month of June or so. In terms of the second match lockbook, that will probably be coming out at the same time, because basically, when these life things just get in the way and you have to prioritise them, everything else goes on the back burner. Thanks very much for your patience. A few of you did get in touch with me to say happy birthday, but if you have not wished the podcast happy birthday yet, the best way to, well, mark this birthday will be to purchase Matchlock and the Embassy, which you should know has been completely edited and, I should say, fixed. In the last while, I removed 23,000 words from Matchlock and the Embassy, basically getting rid of all the fluff all the needless background and internal monologues, and making it a much better, faster, more accessible and interesting book 
in the same formula that I follow with the second Matchlock book. So, yeah, if you haven't checked out Matchlock, or if you had and didn't think it was all that and a bag of chips, then check it out now, and maybe you will think it is all that and a bag of chips. If you do, please give it a review. I'm demanding a lot because, hey, it's my birthday, and, yeah, things are kind of crazy in Zach Twomley land right now. So, that would be really, really appreciated. Other than that, you guys are supporting this show really well on Patreon, and I super appreciate that too. I normally try and keep these housekeeping things in the middle of the episode, but purely because there's a good bit of stuff and I didn't want you guys to miss out, I thought it'd be wise to put it here. Rest assured, we will now continue this episode without any interruptions whatsoever. But again, thanks for being with When Diplomacy Fails for a whole decade. I really can't believe that this show I started when I just wanted to talk about Bismarck is now so freaking old. Some of you have been with this show from literally the very beginning, like from that very first Bannockburn episode, from that very first episode I did as a guest podcast on the history of England. So yeah, what a journey we've been on. And here's to 10, 20, 30, 40 more years. I don't know. Until podcasting stops being a thing, I'm going to keep doing this. So don't worry. Wherever I go and whatever I do, When Diplomacy Fails will always be a priority. And I have you to thank for that, for helping me to make history thrive. All right, enough self-congratulation. Let's get on with the episode. And we follow on from last time when we reached a pivotal moment in our story. Just over a year after redefining the conflict, Gustavus Adolphus of Sweden fell on the bloody battlefield of Lutzen, some 20 kilometers from Leipzig. After serving as the face of the opposition for so long, it was difficult to imagine life without the Swedish king. He had entered the conflict, blown it wide open, and now he was gone. Somehow, everyone would have to carry on without him, and tasked with this mission, first and foremost, was the Swedish Chancellor Axel Oxenstierna, who we're going to hear a lot about in the next few episodes, and who is probably better known for having a Patreon tier named after him, and a mug with his likeness. Of course, Axox, as we're going to call him, would more than earn his stripes, serving as Chancellor of Sweden for the duration of the Thirty Years' War and beyond. As Sweden and its remaining soldiers slipped into mourning, other commanders would have to take the helm. Names like Bernard of Saxe-Weimar, Gustav Horn, Johann Banner and Lennart Torstensson, men who would effectively lead Sweden into the second half of the conflict and who had all been present when the Swedish king had fallen. Our story has turned a sort of corner after the last episode, but we are by no means slowing down. Gustavus's death wasn't just a tragedy for his followers, it was also a godsend of an opportunity for his foes. All that was needed was a firm campaign against the Swedish influence, and the previous disasters could surely be turned right around. Without any further ado then, I will now take you to the scene of another tragedy, when another staple from the Thirty Years' War had the misfortune to also kick the bucket, just two weeks after Gustavus. On the 29th of November, 1632, at 7am, Frederick V, the Winter King, the dispossessed Elector Palatine and engineer of the Bohemian portion of the Thirty Years' War, died of a fever. Yes, if you're thinking this, it was an incredibly anticlimactic end for an individual who had served as the face of the German opposition for much of his life. 
He had hung on every engagement, pinned his hopes and prayers on every campaign, declared his loyalty to each new intervening power, and now he was dead. Had Frederick died sooner, or had Gustavus Adolphus not died two weeks before, then the death of such a pivotal figure in the early phase of the conflict would likely have received greater attention. As it stood by that point in Europe, though, any sympathies which were swirling around the ruined countryside were spared for the late Swedish king, and not for the Winter King, whose career was, after all, a great deal less impressive. Someone who did care a great deal about Frederick's death was his newly widowed wife, Elizabeth Stuart, the sister of King Charles of Britain. I am the most wretched creature that ever lived in this world, she cried, and this shall I ever be, having lost the best friend that I ever had, in whom was all my delight. In desperation did she write to her brother Charles, declaring that, after God, King Charles was her sole resource. Now that Europe's persona non grata was dead, Charles was willing to offer her asylum, yet Elizabeth refused, insisting on maintaining the German tradition of remaining in one's home for a given period of time after the death of a spouse. Elizabeth would return to Britain in time. Incredibly enough, she would live to see the civil wars consume Britain and execute her brother, and she would then live just long enough to see her nephew, Charles II, embark on his restoration in 1660. Elizabeth of Bohemia, or Elizabeth Stuart, or whatever you want to call her, lived a remarkable life, and while she could not have known it, the immensely fruitful marriage she had enjoyed with her late husband would prove vital to the future of Britain's monarchy. Of her brood of 13 children, several lived to adulthood, among them Prince Rupert of the Rhine, a famed commander in the Civil Wars and Anglo-Dutch Wars. Then there was Charles Louis, who was Frederick's successor as Elector Palatine, but most importantly, perhaps, was Princess Sophie. Sophie would marry into the Hanoverian family, and after the Stuart line had virtually died out, Sophie would be the heir-designate to the British throne, though her death in 1713 ensured that her son George succeeded in her stead. In such an indirect way was the Hanoverian line of monarchs established, and it was made possible by the marriage of the Winter King and Queen. So, while neither would ever see Bohemia again, the descendants of Frederick and Elizabeth would manage a significant consolation prize. But while his large family later secured the future of the British crown, in 1632 it only served to make Frederick homesick. Before he died, during the summer of 1632, it had become apparent that Gustavus would not make a lasting deal with Frederick regarding his restoration to the Palatinate until John George of Saxony was consulted. This was a difficult pill for Frederick to swallow because John George of Saxony had never been sympathetic to his cause, invading and seizing portions of the Bohemian kingdom on the emperor's side rather than support his fellow Protestant elector in 1620. By September 1632, the honeymoon between Gustavus and Frederick was over, and Frederick left the Swedish camp for Frankfurt on the Main, where, he was told, negotiations would continue with the Swedes over his Palatinate's future. Frederick had been greatly depressed by what he discovered. Gustavus wished to cling to the most valuable portions of the Palatinate, and to relinquish the rest only after Frederick had himself paid for it. This 
was impossible, as the only assets Frederick possessed by this point were those that had been given to him. It will be a true penitence that I do here, Frederick said. In early October, he wrote to the Swedish king requesting that he be returned to the Palatinate on the terms which they had previously agreed, i.e. Palatine support for Sweden, Swedish occupation of Palatine fortresses, and Frederick's commitment to tolerate Lutheranism. If the Swedish king wants neither the one nor the other, I do not know what I ought to do, Frederick exclaimed. He was totally dependent on his allies, so after despairing for long enough, he penned yet another letter to his brother-in-law, Charles. Therein he complained about his treatment under the Swedes, the miserable state of his palatinate, and his want of aid. Throughout, Frederick was kept going by the promise that he would be reunited with his family in The Hague in spring 1633. He travelled from Frankfurt to Mainz, and there began corresponding with Elizabeth twice a week, the highlight of his week, it seems. And then his fortunes seemed to improve. King Charles was willing to sponsor an English expedition of 8,000 infantry and 2,000 cavalry to serve under Frederick's personal command. What was more, the Palatine fortress of Oppenheim was willing to swear fealty to him. Swedish forces were now far away after chasing Wallenstein into Saxony, so Frederick dared to dream that a restoration was possible and that he could return to heal his scarred homeland. I would not stay eight days in Mainz, he wrote to his wife in early November, being so extremely tired of it all. And it was here that his correspondence ended, for just as his fortunes seemed to be improving, Frederick caught the fever which was to kill him. Almost certainly, the genuine exhaustion that he expressed here played a role in weakening his health, which had been stellar for much of his life up to this point. By the time Elizabeth read those final words, her husband had surely died. Strangely, Frederick's remains vanished shortly after his death. It is rumoured that his coffin was even desecrated by bandits en route to Sedan, but this is possibly just a rumour put about by Vienna. Regardless of the circumstances, the news of Frederick's death just following that of Gustavus would have been sweet indeed for Emperor Ferdinand. Before 1632 was over, the Emperor's two greatest nemeses had died, and he was the last one standing. As 1633 dawned, the strategic situation in the Thirty Years' War looked very different to the story that had been told the previous year. Lutzen had plainly been a disaster, not merely for Sweden's strategic position in Germany. Gustavus's premature death at 38 years old had left only a six-year-old daughter, Christina, in Stockholm. Furthermore, the Swedish constitution, such as it was, made no provisions for a regency. As no provisions would be made for Gustavus's despondent widow, who was the sister of the elector of Brandenburg, it was evident that the mission would be taken up by Sweden's aristocracy. From the beginning, Axel Oxenstierna, Chancellor during Gustavus's reign, worked to cement his influence on the country. He was largely successful in this task, since even while the nobles might have disliked him, they couldn't deny the necessity of cleaving to his expertise in such a time of crisis. But Axox did not gamble on his influence for remaining in the Ascendant in Stockholm while he was in Germany. He installed his brother as Lord High Steward with responsibility for Sweden's High Court, while his cousin was named Treasurer. 
This supremacy on the part of one family, wrote Ingvar Andersen, was unparalleled since the Middle Ages, and it proved essential for the Swedish war effort, for it enabled the Chancellor to carry out his own policy, in which he revealed a combination, characteristic of him, of obstinacy and flexibility. With his position at home secured, Oxenstierna recognised that the most important and pressing task would be to secure the loyalty and continued cohesion of the army which Sweden had maintained and which Gustavus had formerly led. The grisly aftermath of Lutzen had brought home to soldiery and statesmen alike the increasing cost of war on both sides. The Swedish army held the stinking battlefield the next day where some 6,000 of their men had been lost, but what remained of the soldiery returned to Saxony shortly thereafter. Wallenstein had escaped to Bohemia, but 4,000 men had been lost of his, among them distinguished and dependable lieutenants like Poppenheim, whose body was taken to Prague and afforded a Catholic burial, complete with all the ceremonials one could expect. Other commanders like Piccolomini had been wounded, and Piccolomini's detachment of arquebusiers suffered casualties as high as 40%. Wallenstein paid for the funeral of Poppenheim, but also presided over another funeral, that of his cousin, who had also been struck down at Lutzen. The long hand of death which Lutzen had unleashed seemed to leave no one safe. The impact of the battle was also felt into the new year of 1633. It was necessary to plan for a new campaign, and on the imperial side the understandable impulse was to take advantage of Gustavus's death and the discord this caused in the Protestant camp. For his part, Wallenstein intended to detach Brandenburg and Saxony from Sweden's side, and resumed the correspondence with the Saxon elector. In addition to a correspondence that was initiated with Axe Ox, Indeed, in the spring of 1633, it seemed that all sides had found reason to pause and consider their next move. Diplomatic channels among the Protestant German princes were opened, and the Danish king, Christian IV, took advantage of the death of his rival to pose as mediator. Initially buoyed by the death of his foes, it took some time for Emperor Ferdinand to be worn down and persuaded to compromise, but by July of 1633, he'd been convinced to offer a suspension of the unpopular Edict of Restitution if the Protestant electors would return to the imperial camp. The offer was certainly tempting, and John George would have switched sides in a heartbeat had Swedish soldiers not been nearby. Efforts to persuade Brandenburg to abandon the Swedes also failed, likely for the same reason, and Axox knew he would have to move quickly in the diplomatic as well as the military sphere to prevent any shedding of allies or discussions of peace. Axox turned to the political situation first and worked to realise the ambitions of the late Swedish king with the creation of the Heilbronn League in January 1633. The aim of this league was to provide an alternative to the Catholic League, that body dominated by Maximilian of Bavaria and serving since 1620 as a significant military arm of the Emperor, alongside Wallenstein's so-called imperial force. But this was not all. Oxenstierna was not thinking merely of his enemies, he was also thinking of his friends. The loyalties of many German princes, especially those Protestant electors in Brandenburg and Saxony, had been won largely due to the Emperor's intransigence and Sweden's military supremacy. 
a great deal of Sweden's political security then rested on military power, which was really the story of its empire for the next century or so. But with the death of Gustavus, Axox also had to demonstrate to the Germans that an era had not passed and that Sweden was still a dependable power. A further concern may have been the creeping involvement of Cardinal Richelieu in German affairs. Richelieu was mindful of the need to maintain a party of opposition to the emperor in Germany, but there were rumours that Richelieu had viewed the death of Gustavus as a chance to jump ship and to offer the helm of this opposition party to a more malleable partner such as Saxony. The creation of the Heilbronn League would nip these rumours in the bud before a disastrous political decision could be made and Sweden be left without its French paymaster. Subsidies had slowed throughout 1632 as, interestingly, Gustavus continued to unnerve Richelieu with his expensive ambitions. The historian David Parrott even went as far as describing Gustavus's death as a piece of unexpected good fortune because it granted Richelieu more opportunities. As we have seen, though, it also compelled another formidable statesman, Axel Oxenstierna, to act. After assembling in March, key German figures on the Rhine, in Swabia and Franconia agreed to sign the treaty formulating the Heilbronn League on the 13th of April 1633. Notable in his absence was John George of Saxony, who, surprise surprise, remained aloof from the agreement, but still officially was in alliance with Sweden, according to that treaty made in September 1631. Officially a friend he may have been, but John George had in fact hosted a rival meeting of Protestant German potentates in Dresden at the same time. Aside from George William of Brandenburg, who refused to go against the Swedes, attendance at the Saxon meeting was poor. Evidently, even with the vanishing of their champion, Germans were unwilling to bet against Sweden. Its military reputation spoke for itself, and until Swedish forces did suffer a great defeat, there was no reason for these Germans to jump ship. Thus, the terms of Heilbronn obliged the German signatories freely and collectively confederate closer with the royal dignity and majesty of the most praiseworthy crown of Sweden under the guidance of its plenipotentiary legate and his excellency, the royal chancellor, that is, Axel Oxenstierna. They agree that all confederates shall be faithful and give mutual assistance and protect each other from harm. They will also venture their persons, their lives and their fortunes in the cause until such a time as German liberty and a respect for the principles and constitution of the Holy Roman Empire are once again firmly established. The restoration of the evangelical estates is secured and a just and certain religious and profane peace, which all confederates can enjoy, is obtained and concluded, and also until the royal dignity and majesty and crown of Sweden has been assured of an appropriate satisfaction. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. 
PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. All of this was, of course, significant, but particularly significant was that last sentence, because it effectively committed the German potentates to make war alongside Sweden until a peace treaty that Oxenstierna deemed satisfactory was made. And if there was any doubt that the Chancellor of Sweden was in charge, the second article of the League declared the desire to give a testimony of their high esteem of the Chancellor's excellent qualities by asking and entreating him to take upon himself the office of director for the good of the common cause in its hour of need and for German liberty. To further solidify the Heilbronn League alliance, it was agreed that no confederate shall seek peace separately with the enemy. We are also drawn to the lack of options granted to these Germans. Neutrality was not merely impossible, it was also expressly forbidden per the terms of this treaty. If any confederate, against expectation, does not assist their fellow member or tries to pursue such dangerous policies as becoming neutral, which is henceforth forbidden among the evangelicals, then he will not receive aid from the confederation when he is threatened or attacked by the enemy. So, it was no longer possible to choose between God or the devil, as Gustavus had once urged. This choice was made for these princes, and they could choose to accept the gracious protection of Sweden or be cast adrift in a hostile country. Other proclamations were of note, such as the claim that the Heilbronn League had been forced upon them by the great insolence of the enemy and is designed as a legitimate means of self-defence, and that the Confederates cherish the confident hope that other evangelical electors and estates of the empire, and also foreign potentates and republics, will not be displeased at this work of salvation that promotes God's honour, conserves the Holy Roman Empire and the estates and their eternal welfare, but on the contrary, that they will take occasion to adhere to and enter so Christian and so just a league and assist it. It was a forlorn hope that all Protestant potentates would declare their adherence to the Heilbronn League, but Axox could rest assured that he had gone a long way towards consolidating and legitimising Sweden's position in the empire among the minor German potentates. Now joined by the forces of the Heilbronn League, who together would be compelled to raise a force of 78,000 men on their own expense, Sweden could boast a claim to power in Germany based on something more than Gustavus's force of personality. Armed with the Heilbronn League, the real goal was to bring the likes of Brandenburg and Saxony into its orbit. But George William refused to be drawn, owing to the thorny issue of Pomerania, which Brandenburg had once been promised by the Emperor, 
and which Sweden refused to relinquish. The best George William could do was to attach Brandenburg to an alliance between Sweden and France in October of 1633. In the meantime, a general congress was hosted over the summer of 1633 to persuade more Germans to join. Such a congress could only be hosted in the first place because while Oxenstierna had managed to bring these minor German princes under Sweden's thumb, he had also saved Sweden's army. The Swedish army spread itself out after Lutzen, as a part of the army with Saxon and Brandenburg contingents were to operate in Bohemia and Silesia, meeting the army led by Wallenstein. Another part, with the troops of the Hessian and Lower Saxon Circle, was to hold Westphalia and protect northern Germany, in other words, from any threats to Sweden's Pomeranian bridgehead. Finally, Bernard of Saxe-Weimar, that daring commander who had captured hills beside Lutzen, was ordered forward into southern Germany with the bulk of the Swedish army. While marching through Thuringia in April of 1633, it was only as he combined his forces with those of Gustav Horn outside of Augsburg that problems began to really emerge. Thanks to the unification of the remnants of Gustavus's old army with the new German recruits, Bernard boasted a formidable force of more than 42,000 men. And yet, while that paper number was impressive, these men had not been paid in full since 1631. Worse, the promised bonuses, which were meant to follow battles like Breitenfeld and Lutzen, had not arrived either. Bernard was a capable commander of men, but he was no Gustavus, and his personality could not keep their disaffection at bay for long. Disaffected with their lot and the lack of pay and fairness, the soldiers began acting out, demonstrating a brutality, less in fairness, which Bernard did little to restrain. The unfortunate ten of Landsberg on the River Lech which Gustavus had confronted, where, if you'll remember, Gustavus had confronted and fatally wounded Tilly the previous year, was subject to a four-day sacking, and children were recorded to have been among those massacred. However, Axox appreciated that it was more the officers, rather than the humble grunts, who would have to be appeased. When Bernhard arrived suddenly in Heilbronn in late May, Oxenstierna capitulated granting a whole range of lands and titles to the army's officers in exchange for loyalty and pledges of continued service. Yet it was Bernard of Saxe-Weimar who received the greatest treasure of all. Apparently content to copy the policy of the emperor towards Wallenstein, Oxenstierna signed away vast lands and duchies to Bernhard and made him Duke of Franconia. Per an agreement reached in June, Bernard became one of the most powerful men in the empire, at least on paper, for it was suspected that Oxenstierna was writing checks that the Swedish army could not cash. A resistance to the Swedish occupation in Franconia had not ceased throughout 1632, and the mostly Catholic citizens of the region were unlikely to be pacified by the arrival of their braggadocious new overlord. Rather than be bogged down by the reward, Bernard passed governorship of his new dukedom to his brother and continued to serve as Sweden's useful, if somewhat wild, pair of hands along the Rhine for several more years. And the Rhine remained a volatile theatre of the war, thanks largely to the sheer number of significant actors swirling around. Of these actors, there was little doubt that France was becoming the most important. Having united behind a common policy, King Louis XIII and Cardinal Richelieu set their sights on the Duchy of Lorraine, a task 
made increasingly easy thanks to the Duke of Lorraine's refusal to accept a lasting peace. Originally forced to the peace table in summer 1632, Duke Charles of Lorraine recruited a new army of 9,000 men by August 1633. His newly created powers led him to grow more defined and influential among German Rhenish princes, but there was also a further compelling reason for Richelieu and Louis XIII to authorise another hammer blow on the recalcitrant duke. This Duke of Lorraine had recently welcomed into his court the disgraced younger brother of King Louis XIII, Gaston d'Orléans. By the 20th of September, Nancy, the Lorraine capital, was in French hands, and Duke Charles of Lorraine signed the Treaty of Charm shortly thereafter. Per the terms of the treaty, Lorraine was subject to French occupation for 30 years, and Duke Charles was pulled once more from the Habsburgs' orbit. It was to prove a vital strategic move to insulate France's eastern frontier along the Rhine, but several additional dangers remained and would only be aggressively dealt with once the war between Spain and France was allowed to erupt into the open. I believe that Sweden wants peace and that she wants to bring her forces home and to leave the two electors of Brandenburg and Saxony to find their own way out of the labyrinth. This had been the astute judgment of Wallenstein in the months before Gustavus's death and he believed it still applied to Axox's regime. The best way to bring about peace, therefore, was to exploit the rift between Saxony on the one hand and Sweden on the other. On paper it seemed an easy task. Wallenstein was based in Bohemia by this point, and he was tasked with essentially combating that third of the Swedish army which had been sent to defend the Saxon border with Bohemia, while he also waited for an opportune moment to seize more land in Silesia. Because of John George of Saxony's proximity to the Bohemian front, his soldiers made up the bulk of that army. Theoretically then, with a reduced Swedish influence, there was never a better time to get at John George and convince him to switch sides. If Saxony could be brought back into Emperor Ferdinand's orbit, then Sweden would have lost a major ally, and the Protestant weather vane would swing back in favour of the Habsburgs. Wallenstein thus attempted to divide and conquer. In June 1633, he arranged a ceasefire with the Swedish Saxon army that was then invading Silesia. Then Wallenstein brought some suspicion upon himself by engaging in discussions with the Saxon commander, Hans-Georg von Arnhem, who had fought for Wallenstein only a few years before. Understandably, the Emperor and Oxenstierna were suspicious in equal measure about these contacts, and the Emperor warned that Wallenstein was searching for a means of switching sides, and Oxenstierna warned that John George, through Arnhem, intended to do the same. Throughout the summer, the ceasefire between the Saxons and Wallenstein endured, but when it ended, Wallenstein managed to trap the Swedish contingent of the army, which had been led by a blast from the past, by the way, Count Thurn, the former commander of the doomed Bohemian Confederate Army in 1620. Poor old Count Thurn was to prove just as unsuccessful here, as his army of 8,000 men were cut off and surrendered at the fortified town of Steinau, and then Count Thurn made a deal. This development was devastating, clearing the enemy out of Silesia and providing a momentary boost to Wallenstein's reputation. It also left Wallenstein with a real advantage over Arnhem in the field, since Arnhem's Saxon army was now the only thing standing in the way of the destruction of Saxony itself. 
Understandably, following this triumph, Wallenstein reopened negotiations with Hans-Georg von Arnhem, hoping once more to detach Saxony and Brandenburg from the Swedish camp, reducing as a result the activity on this bohemian front. Meanwhile, at the town of Oldendorf, west of Hanover, on the 8th of July 1633, a Swedish force of 13,000 attacked and routed an imperial force of 15,000. This effectively cleared the imperials out of Westphalia and Lower Saxony, and served as the Saxon-Swedish answer to Wallenstein's success at Steinau. Oldendorf was atypical in the context of the Thirty Years' War, as both sides attacked in the beginning of the battle, rather than the traditional style where one side attacked and the other defended, as I often do in Empire Total War. After routing the Imperial Cavalry, George of Brunswick-Luneburg demonstrated an adept appreciation for flexibility in the attack, and he overcame the numerically superior Imperial opposition. Though largely glossed over in the war's narrative, this battle was the largest seen in Westphalia during its duration, and Peter H. Wilson called it one of the most complete victories of the war, after the Imperial side endured as many as 6,000 casualties to Georgia of Brunswick-Luneburg's 300. But that was not the end of Wallenstein's story in 1633. By the end of that year, he had become persona non grata in Vienna once again, as a result of developments further afield. While he had been successful in his own theatre, Bernard of Saxe-Weimar had rampaged through Bavaria in the autumn, capturing Regensburg in mid-November. This was a symbolic and significant triumph for Bernhard, and for the anti-imperialist cause. It piled additional pressure onto Maximilian of Bavaria, who then, in turn, petitioned Emperor Ferdinand to make his generalissimo, that is Wallenstein, do something to save Bavaria. Little effort was made to congratulate the hard-working and generally unwell Wallenstein, who had routed Sweden's threat to Bohemia and increased the pressure upon Saxony. The problem with Wallenstein by this point was not necessarily that his record had become lacklustre. Instead, it seems to have been a simple case of the emperor's distrust of him and imagining that he harboured grand, treasonous ambitions, perhaps even for the bohemian crown. These suspicions, which we will address in later episodes, remain as elusive and mysterious as the campaigning year of 1633. In military terms wrote the historian Jeff Mortimer, who is also the biographer of Wallenstein. 1633 was a year in which neither side achieved much of consequence, as although the war did not by any means come to a standstill, it was effectively relegated into second place by a convoluted series of attempts to find some basis for peace. It is not surprising that this lack of consequential battles was the story of 1633 when we consider the Thirty Years' War as a whole. Although Ferdinand in Vienna and Oxenstierna at Frankfurt had become frustrated with the lack of progress, it seemed to have slipped their minds that the last two years had been an anomaly in the grand scheme of things. That the decisive battles of Breitenfeld, the Lech and Lutzen to some extent had all followed one another within 14 months was not in keeping with the previous pace of the war. In a sense then, 1633 was not unusual, it was more like a return to form, to the old days and yet it would prove perhaps the final full year of breathing space which either side would enjoy for the remainder of this conflict. The total collapse of Swedish power that Axox had so feared, Ferdinand had welcomed, and Richelieu had predicted, 
did not take place, at least not yet. Sweden and its German allies were spread out on three major fronts, and they continued to hold too many important bastions of Germany to be properly discounted. Axox had solidified and formalised the pact that Sweden enjoyed with the Germans, and this Heilbronn League would have to be taken apart if the Swedish grip on the empire was to be substantially loosened. Swedish commanders were entrenched in Pomerania, in Bavaria and along the Rhine, though they had mostly been ejected from Bohemia. It would take another thumping victory either to resurrect Swedish fortunes or crush them once and for all. Through 1633 they had held on, but Emperor Ferdinand was mobilising the resources of his family in Austria and in Spain, and he planned to make 1634 count. An army, courtesy of the Spanish, was on its way to Austria, picking up men from Italy as it did so. Its aim was nothing less than the reversal of the Habsburgs' poor fortunes, and with 24,000 men under the command of the brother of the King of Spain, the mission was as bold as it was significant. Lutzen had removed Sweden's head. Now it remained to extract her heart. That's going to do it for today's episode, history friends. Happy birthday when diplomacy fails, and thanks so much for listening. Make sure to tune in next time, but for now, I have been Zach, you've been a wonderful patron or history friend or both. Thanks so much for a decade of when diplomacy fails, and I'll be seeing you all soon. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Normally, being a little extra can be a bit much. But when it comes to healthcare, it pays to be extra. And United Healthcare makes it easy with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they supplement your primary plan, helping you manage out-of-pocket costs without the usual requirements and restrictions like deductibles and enrollment periods. So when it comes to covering your medical bills, you can feel good about being a little extra. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you.